You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. There has been a nationwide spike in violent crime, with many cities seeing record homicide rates over the past year. Police departments are bracing for the possibility of a violent summer as pandemic restrictions recede and warmer months begin. In this episode, Washington Post criminal justice reporter Tom Jackman talks to Louisville Police Chief Erica Shields about what is contributing to the spike, strategies to keep communities safe, and lessons from the nationwide reckoning over policing. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tom Jackman, a criminal justice reporter with the Washington Post. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Louisville Police Chief Erica Shields as we continue our conversations about the rise in violent crimes around the country, protecting public safety and the role of policing. Chief Shields was previously the police chief in Atlanta. Thank you for joining us, Chief. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Gladly, uh, I have no easy questions for you as you would expect, and we'll start off with uh, crime being up in Louisville, but that's hardly unique. Crime was up in Atlanta, where you previously worked for 25 years. Uh, crime is up in Washington. Crime is up in virtually every big city. Shootings, homicides, up. Uh, recently, you noted that homicides rose 92% in Louisville last year, and they're on the rise now. I think you've had 104 so far this year, uh, when the total for last year was 170. What? Why is this happening? Uh, after so many years of declines, I mean, we used to see these stats steadily going down year after year. What has what started the change in 2020 and which has continued into 2021? No, and I appreciate that because I think you're asking the right question. And that is what is different? Because if you're gonna find the solution, you've got to figure out where's the aberration. And when I look at Louisville, it's similar to when I police in Atlanta and uh, in Georgia. And that is first off in the southern states where you have very lax gun laws it does lend itself to a high proliferation of illegal weapons on the street. So that's already in place. You layer on top of that, there is, there is a COVID component to it, certainly. Um, individuals who were already marginalized um, were further set off to the side, um, in particular when you talk about juveniles. Um, if you have young people who do not have stability in their lives, very often that, that the sanctuary is the school, the Boys and Girls Club, uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and all of that is removed. Now you have a bunch of children that just have, they don't, they don't have any, any place to be or anything to do or purpose. So now we've in, uh, we have the illegal guns, we have uh, kids with a bunch of idle time on their hands. Um, we have a real backlash um, against policing, which in turn has prompted what you're seeing is in many areas, and I really am experiencing this firsthand in, in uh, Louisville, is a reluctance by the officers to self-initiate activity and to be proactive. It's not that they're anti-community or they don't want to do their job, to be clear. This is not something that should be associated with blue flu or striking. It's really, um, last year put them in a mental space where they are not sure the community wants them to police. They're concerned that if they're involved in a use of force, they will be immediately stigmatized. There'll be protesters in front of their house. Um, and they're also acutely aware of, given the volume of guns that are on the street, they may have to use force. So 
what the, the market difference that you're seeing is, one is the removal of services for kids, and two, it's police who are reactive. And the only way you deter crime is if you, are, you insert yourself in it as a cop and disrupt it ahead of time. And that's, that has not been occurring. Well, you, t- you touched on about five different things I'd planned to ask you about. Let's go first to proactive policing. Uh, you've talked about how that's crucial. Uh, and so last month you launched executive team engagement to get your commanders out into the community to encourage proactive policing. I think you've been out there too. So how's that gone? What, what have you learned? I think it's only been three or four weeks that you've been doing this, but how's that gone for you so far? So, you know, previously, if you had, you know, I think as a chief, you always have to you figure out what the issue is that you are facing. There's similar similarities for sure between jurisdictions, but the issues I have here are very different than the ones I had in Atlanta, quite honestly. Here, what I encountered was officers just were not confident, are not confident that the command leadership, the administration, the community, the city council, will support them. And so there's a real reluctance, a real hesitancy to to step forward and step out. Um, On top of that, layer on top of that, uh, this high volume of resignations. And so what I realized is lacking is just a a true belief in the commanders that we will fight for them and say, no, what they did, they had to do. And no amount of messaging that I was putting forward was going to resolve that as much as saying to the executive team, put on the bulletproof vest, get the radio, and we're going to go out and we're going to patrol with these folks. And so we pulled details. Um, and people from, and what we're doing is we're pulling across um, all of the divisions, all eight divisions, because it's important to me that that the message starts to, to make it through the different parts of the uh, county and the uh, city. And we pulled together this detail, the executive command, myself included, we were, were policing with them um, so that they see firsthand that, no, we, we do understand how difficult this job is. We do understand the decision making you're having to do. For me, it was, it's been a great opportunity to get to see firsthand how many guns are on the street. So we've done the detail in the last two weeks. We've done the detail five times. We've seized 26 guns. And those are just the guns that, you know, that people didn't drive off with legally. And it was very interesting to me just the first night, because like you see it, you, you hear it all the time, but seeing firsthand some of the weaponry we were coming across, it was really, it was really unsettling. Um, and so it's been very good. Uh, we need to continue in it, but I don't, I don't think it's coincidental that the first, we, we had been hitting homicides. It was almost, it felt like every night, unfortunately. And we started the details and we went eight days without a homicide. And I, I directly believe that that was a result of the engagement shown by the officers. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of it. Well, let's talk about guns. Guns purchases are way up everywhere. Uh, are there fixes to gun laws that you support uh, and which could pass that could actually make a difference? That's the key, isn't it? Could pass. You know, I've always tried to, is, um, as a chief to, to, to take the middle road because I know that I'm, I have an obligation to serve all constituents. 
I will say, though, that there has just really been such a, a lack of common sense on some of the laws that we've seen passed in, in recent years. Um, and I, I ran into this in Atlanta, um, run into it here, and it's, you, why, why does someone need to walk around with an assault rifle in, in a city park? Why do they need to walk around with assault rifles on city streets? I mean, that's just, it's asinine. And I think anybody that can stand up and say that that is what the Constitution had in mind is like, no, you know, get your head out of the plant holder. So I think there's definitely, there's definitely things if we put down, if we put down our swords and really say, we want to have a policy that ensures the safety of all Americans, we can come to the table with something, but it's become so politicized, people don't want to listen. Um, I think, so I think there's, there's that ground, but there also is a ground of like, I really hope, you know, so we have the DOJ here now. I really hope that the Department of Justice will expand its platform to start looking at those cities that are experiencing these enormous upticks in crime or those areas that have mass shooters to see how the judiciary is operating. It is imperative that somebody start demanding transparency from the DA's office, the judges, the system. Because what I will tell you is almost without fail, Folks, the violent repeat offenders that my folks are arresting, and the key word, operative word is repeat, have, have been re arrested repeatedly for being in possession of an illegal firearm or not being authorized to have a firearm. And it's like, if you really want to trans change the narrative around policing and lower the level of officer-involved shootings, you have to start holding accountable those individuals who have shown that they are predisposed to committing violence, particularly with guns and others. And that is absent. That is, that's not just the Louisville issue. I go to, when I go to major city chiefs conferences, this is an issue we're all struggling with. And so what, what we need to be seeing is how many of these cases are dead docketed? Are the judges, how many days a week are judges working? Are they requiring uh, plea bargains? Are they going to trial? How many times are people being allowed to have first offender status? Let's start looking at the whole of the judiciary because it's unfair to the constituents because they think when the police have made an arrest, oh, it's taken care of. Not at all. Not at all. Well, there are a couple, you raised about 14 points there, but <laughs> the, the key ones at the end are that, you know, I think the courts were, were responding to this sort of backlash on over incarceration. And then sure. COVID came along and they were trying to clear the jails so that people didn't die in jail. Um, so do you feel like the courts have lost their sense of balance and that they, you know, I mean, a lot of them haven't gotten back up to 100% speed. They've got gigantic backlogs. They've got excuses mm -hmm. uh, out the planter, as you would say. So uh, <laughs> what's, why do you think the courts haven't, uh, you know, you're you're right. A lot of chief, a lot of chiefs have criticized the courts for being slow to re respond. Uh, I don't particularly understand why repeat offenders are getting released. And so, why do you, where's the disconnect here in terms of the courts getting back to where they were, or is it that they're responding to criminal justice reform by letting too many people out? So, what I will say is this: Yes, people were there was mass over incarceration in the 80s and 90s all day long and i'm not going to defend it the fact of the matter is at the time it was convenient to put people 
in jail, in prison for substance abuse issues, issues that we now treat in a manner they should be treated. But that worked for so long then because the bulk of the population that that impacted was the black population, period. I am, you know, which is why you're gonna automatically see myself and others cringe when you hear mandatory sentencing because it just really did not take into account what the issue was. However, what we're talking about here are people who have guns and who are willing to kill other people. This issue with the courts has been going on long before COVID, long before COVID. COVID is no way, shape or form, uh, even a part of the excuse process. It, it's, it's provided an excuse for this past year and maybe contributed somewhat as the jails have tried to empty out, but no, it's been afoot for a long time. I think that, I think that when there is a lack of transparency in any institution, institution whether it's a government or private sector, cultures take hold. And the cultures uh, within many of these eight jurisdictions have just become so politicized that there's just there's not even the time or attention being given to cases that they should be. I think many of them are fast track. I don't think they, they even look to see what the priors are. Um, I think you see negotiations between the judges and the jails to ensure populations are come down so the jails don't come under consent decree. So I think that there is a, a, a much larger underworld that has to be looked at, and it's not that it's corrupt or ill-intentioned, but the results have created a very unproductive uh, system. Sort of along those lines, people have criticized the decriminalization of certain you know, low-level offenses by reform-minded prosecutors not arresting marijuana, traffic, or uh, you know, trespassing, low-level stuff, and that cities run by Democrats, uh, in particular, are being hit hard by crime. Is crime becoming a political issue? Uh, and do you think decriminalization of low-level crimes is contributing to the spike in crime? You know, it would be it'd be convenient to say that, but again, when I look at the folks that were arresting for homicides, for shooting at others, when we're looking at the victims who are engaged in the, the violent activity, it's not low level activity they're engaged in. It almost always connects to some sort of force, a weapon. It may be drug driven in terms of they've, they've been dealing in with it, dealing in drugs. But when you start talking about an ounce of weed or criminal trespass, that's not gonna change the violent crime narrative. I think what what constituents have to be, what, what mayors need to be considerate of is if someone's trying to run a business and a person is arrested for criminal trespass because they're actually, actually disrupting their ability to make a living and they go down to the jail, they walk in one door, they go back out the other door and are right back in front of the business. You know, that, that to a business owner, that's, that in fact impacts their livelihood. So I think that you, you to just come to the table and say we're going to decriminalize, but there's no solution is, is kind of irresponsible. How are you going to shore up that gap when you know there's a problem and you don't want it to just be a police centric problem? What is the solution? And I think that's where a number of uh, mayors or governors, what have you, have come up short. They've not really thought through what the trickle down is going to be. You've targeted gun violence with something called intelligence led policing to uh, interrupt the violence. How does that work? So the, the last thing that I want is for my officers to just randomly go out, 
stop a bunch of cars, stop a bunch of people, and hope they stumble on stuff. That is that is the recipe for, for trouble, and quite frankly, I think it's part of the reason um, LMPD is is in the ice uh, crosshairs of the DOJ. So intelligence-led policing is identifying those individuals who are engaged in violence, known violent offenders, identifying who their network of associates is, whether or not there's gang violence, whether or not we're seeing a connection with drugs going through the city. It's using all open source data available. It is focusing on specific individuals for violent crime. So you have a very direct um, order directive to your troops about this is who you're looking for, but this is also what you're looking for. So in other words, searching a vehicle shouldn't be the exception, not the norm, right? So it's understanding that you really are going for the higher level charge and that back to your point when you when when you're when you're giving yourselves a high five because you got some some weed off of someone i mean that's no that's embarrassing right i mean that's not going to change the trajectory of crime in the city so it's really messaging what our focus is and this is the path to get there there's been a lot of discussion about and you mentioned it briefly a couple minutes ago sending mental health clinicians into scenes where people are in crisis rather than the police. Uh, we had a recent story where the clinicians weren't always so thrilled to jump into a hot scene without police help. You've got something going called the Deflection Initiative. Uh, how does that work and have you had enough time to try it in Louisville yet? So it's not, it's not up and running here yet. It, we had something similar in Atlanta and I, I agree with you. I think what you'll hear is the folks who are not fans of police will say, we want these, we want caseworkers to go out. We don't want police to be a part of it. They screw up everything, blah, blah, blah. The reality of it is when you're dealing with issues that involve mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, you just quite never know what you're going to get. So a, a situation may readily go south. You hope not, but it might. So you have to, you have to construct it in such a way that the safety of the caseworkers is paramount. And if they feel that they need a police presence, it has to be afforded to them. But the idea is that when the 911 call comes in, you have dispatchers who are trained in triaging out those issues that are more representative of socioeconomic um, concerns. So they know the questions they ask, they, they understand, they get their mind around it. So it's not just uh, sending the police and having the police make an assessment. Done properly and triaged appropriately, you are going to have a core group of 911 calls that will never be sent to the police. A caseworker will be able to go out and immediately address it. Then you're probably going to have some that fall in that gray area where you're not sure if there's going to be a confrontation or violence. So the caseworker and the, the police meet up, they go in together to problem solve. Um, you know what? I don't, it's, uh, I have a lot of hope for it. We did something similar in Atlanta and it worked fantastic. We called it the pre-arrest diversion program. It was a, a, it was coordinated very heavily with nonprofits. And the issue quite honestly we ran into there was we did not have the capacity for the number of individuals that needed help in Atlanta. And so that's what the University of Louisville is building out the program here. And that is the one message I keep pushing to them is be careful because the demand may well exceed what you can you can meet and that you don't want to fall off in that space. You mentioned the, the Justice Department 
coming to town to begin an investigation into the department in the wake of the Breonna Taylor case. Uh, how did your folks respond to that news and how has that been proceeding so far? I think, you know, so what I'll say is from the time I came here, at least my command staff, I messaged we would be fortunate if they didn't come, but we had to be realistic and understand they probably would come. And so I think from a command level, it probably wasn't so alarming to the degree that that got down to the troops, probably not so much. That's an issue. Uh, communication downward is always a problem. Um, I think for the troops, it was, it was, a, it was another punch in the gut, you know, they've just really been pummeled uh, over the last year. And listen, they'll be the first to tell you, most of it, you know, a lot of it, it, it they brought on, okay? But also a lot of it they didn't, and a lot of the stuff, the hate that's been uh, pushed their way is not, it's not okay. It's, I'll say that all day long. Um, I take pride in the police department. I take a lot of pride in officers and some of the stuff that they've been subjected to is not is not acceptable. Um, that being said, so I think it was really demoralizing because it was just like, here's another layer, here's another, how are people gonna see us? Because that's the one thing that really surprised me when I came in here. When I started the job, I was fairly certain people would not want to work. I mean, I just knowing, seeing, it wasn't just seeing the crime, but just knowing what they've been through, I figured the cops wouldn't want to work. And yet, from day one, what I've run into is this department that has all these officers that they want to work, they want the community to be proud of them, they want to do the job correctly, they just want direction. I mean, so it's a very prideful department. So the DOJ was a gut check, but that being said, what they've come in, the DOJ, and what they've asked to look at, what their concerns are, it's nothing that, I've not heard anything that I did not already expect and that I don't think has already, at some level, been public here. So I'm, it, it's okay, we just, it'll, it's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna be inexpensive, but this department will be stronger once it navigates through it. Uh, in Atlanta, you stepped down as chief after one of your officers shot and killed Rayshard Brooks, a man who was running away from them in a Wendy's parking lot, and that came shortly after the death of George Floyd, sparked more protests, Atlanta in the spotlight, are there some large lessons that you have taken away from from that episode and from your time in Atlanta that you know made you a better chief? I think there's always, you know, there's always lessons. There's lessons every day. I think what I would say to folks is every incident is different. And I think where you're going to see and what you are seeing why there's such a hesitancy by the new DA. Um, to take that officer to trial and is Ray Sharbrooks, his death absolutely was a tragedy all day long. But the, what I will say is he fought with the officers. The situation became escalated over and over. Um, and so what you have to figure out is, are we gonna get into a space, because this is what I was being asked, are we gonna get into a space where individuals who we know our DUI, that we let them go as well. And so I think what I realized is there's some really, there's some really differing opinions on how policing should be done beyond the obvious. Um, and I think, so there's a much larger conversation that we have to somehow, we have to vet out while things are going well, because 
that, you know, that that's just such a tricky space to get into because I'm fairly certain that mothers against drunk drivers would have a very different feel on that. And so, you know what, there's, there's stuff that I've, I've taken away every day from my job I do differently. But the one thing that really stuck out to me after the ratio I broke to killing and when I look at the other incidents, the force incidents I had in Atlanta and the force incidents I had here, and I wish I'd, I'd pushed it harder and I'm trying to push it here. I don't think we invest enough in our officers in requiring them to be comfortable in hand-to-hand -hand tactics. And I think that while technology has been wonderful, it has also allowed us to become complacent in a number of ways. Officers don't even need to get out of a patrol car to answer a call. And so they don't. And I think, you know, relying on pepper spray, tasers, paintball guns, what have you, you've got to, or uh, pepper ball guns, um, it's allowed them to not have that level of comfort that police did when I would say I came through with hand-to-hand -hand combat. And by combat, I mean a firm grip hold, put, putting someone on the back of a patrol car, maneuvering their elbows so you can get them in custody. And you just see that the, the tactics, because listen, as cops, you, have, you are going to have to deal with confrontation. There is a reason we train people the way we do. It doesn't go well all the time. I would love for it to, but it doesn't. That's reality. So how is you a cop, as a cop, are you going to handle it when the person resists arrest? And what I see is officers, whether it was in Atlanta in that incident and other incidents and here, they don't know, they don't know how to fight. And I don't mean chokeholds. I mean, just fights so you can get the person in custody without, without the situation escalating. And so I know that when I left Atlanta and I felt like, geez, how do we, how do we get it so that a large city department that you can have people, because really, if you want to be good in something, something like that, you really have to be training a minimum of two days a week. And, and I, we have here, um, and I know we're running up on time, but we have this uh, professional instructor at our academy. He's an officer, and he, he teaches uh, jiu-jitsu. He's world-renowned. And I'm trying to get it so that, and the recruits were all taught it and in service. But I want, I want the department and the city to pay for people to go twice a week. But the problem is, how do I get the people to go that won't go? And like, I went to that class of this guy, that this guy teaches. I felt empowered after one class, one class. So it's like, that's what I need is the confidence so you don't feel you have to pull out your gun or your taser. You know what I mean? So that's my next challenge. I could ask you many more questions just about that. Uh, and that was fascinating, but <laughs> we're out of time. Uh, thank you very much, Chief, for speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you, the audience, for joining us. Uh, today at 2 p.m., join my colleague, Paige Winfield Cunningham, for a conversation with medical experts about the state of the coronavirus pandemic from vaccines to variants. You can always head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about upcoming programs. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.